0: for your great mercy that is greater, grace that is greater than all of our sin, that you have given us your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. I pray, dear Lord, as, that we, as we open your word and study your truth, that it will come to us in a powerful, spiritual way, that your Holy Spirit would move in us and move among us as a church. That you would mightily change us, change our hearts, sanctify us, purify us to what you've called us to be and to do. Again, we ask this blessing not just on those of us who are members and believers and followers of Jesus, but even those who are here or watching who don't know you, who may not follow Christ. We pray that you'd move in their hearts, regenerate their spirit, so that they could repent and believe the gospel and be justified. Before you, not on the basis of their own righteousness, but on the basis of, the basis of Jesus' righteousness and the fact that He has paid for, for their sin and risen again in victory over sin and death. Lord, we pray that you would move in us to do these things, move in us to be different. Pray that this will indeed make us different people. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always a true privilege to open our Bibles and worship God with our hearts and minds. Please turn to Matthew 27, and here we continue where we left off last time studying the dark series of events and people that led to our Savior's death. If God's smiling providence is upon us on Easter Sunday, April 9th, we will have finished this section and we will begin Matthew 28, that first half, which is, of course, his resurrection. Matthew and the other gospel writers, for that matter, spent quite a bit more time on the events leading up to his death than he did on the resurrection, so that's what we're doing. We're spending a lot of time going through these, these words, these verses, really section by section, even drilling down even further to learn these truths, leading us all to that glorious moment of His resurrection. This week I was reading Jerry Bridge's book, Respectable Sins, and the thesis of which is that we tolerate many sins in our lives because we compare what we think are seemingly mild sins to the gross violations of the culture and world around us. And as a result, we presume some level of innocence some level of exception when it comes to our own sin. In comparison, we find our sins to be respectable. Now, this could be also said of Pontius Pilate. Pilate's sins here seem to be innocuous, small in comparison to Judas and the religious leaders that were involved in the death of Christ. We read the story of Pilate and maybe... We have a little sympathy on him, a little empathy. You sort of feel like, oh, you know, this could have been me. I I feel like, sort of like Pilate. He's sort of innocent here. and In fact, Pilate thinks himself to be innocent. Of course, he washes his, his hands, declares himself innocent. Even though it is he who had the final power over whether or not Jesus would be tortured and crucified. Pilate indeed had him scourged. Pilate indeed had him crucified. Yet again, sometimes we read the story of Pilate, in particular Pilate's wife, and we feel sort of like he's more like a a subject of what's going on rather than the person responsible. Yet Yet as we've discovered, he was as culpable as anyone that day. So as we began digging into this passage last week, we noticed that though Pilate may have asserted his innocence... That was simply in man's eyes, not God's. He was innocent before man, but guilty before God. And this attitude is prevalent among mankind. Most folks presume they are guiltless, or at least if they're guilty, they're guilty simply of respectable sins. And their sins, therefore, ought to be brushed aside as though God never saw it We're profoundly rebuked by this passage and instructed as we read this. Well, let's do that. Matthew 27, again, I'm going to read the whole section. I'll read verses 1 and 2 because that gives us the introduction, sort of sets it up. As you know, that next part talks about Judas, so we already went through that passage. And then I'll skip down to verse 11 so we can read the whole flow of what happened between Jesus and Pilate. Verse 1 of Matthew 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. When he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that he had been delivered, that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The Lord bless the reading of his word. The other day I was listening to a news story about a serial killer in Canada. They'd gotten through the trial. They had declared him guilty, and they were at the senten- sentencing phase. And as you know, at this part of the trial, a good defense attorney works hard to lighten the sentence, to reduce his time, to make his crime seem less grisly or more excusable, maybe even justified to some extent. But how do you do that with a vile killer like this. I mean, this guy is truly satanic. They called him a butcher. But there they were, these defense attorneys talking about his upbringing and how much harm he suffered as he was a child and all the circumstances and all the things that really lighten what he did or supposedly lighten what he did. I was thinking to myself, of this injustice. I mean, there's a whole lot of tax money being spent on making this butcher less of a monster than he really is so that they'll lighten his sentence. This got me thinking about all the time and effort we as humans spend working as our own defense attorney. We have a long, illustrious history, don't we? Asserting our innocence, getting ourselves off the hook before God. We work very hard to justify our sin to our own minds, our own hearts. We try to tell ourselves we're not guilty or maybe not as guilty. I think we do this so that overall, maybe even some people in their hearts, they hope that one day they would be declared not guilty before God. How do we do this? Well, we start with blame, of course. That's sort of the the go-to That's been the go-to since the fall, since the very beginning, blaming others. Well, it's my mom's fault, or it's my wife's fault, or my husband's fault, or whatever. We find blame in other people. Another tactic we use is to make light of the crime that we've committed, the sin. This sin, really, God, it's not that bad. After all, sometimes we argue to our own conscience that even God should let you off because there's so many people who do the same thing, and maybe even worse and certainly I'm not the only one who's committed this sin. In fact, there's got to be millions of people who are doing the same thing, maybe even worse things. This is similar to the logical fallacy argumentum ad populum, which means uh, from the populace or from the, an argument from the majority, saying, well, because the majority of people believe something, it must be true. Or the, and this is sort of similar. Because the majority of people sin, I, I can't be that bad. If everyone else is doing it, it, it must not be that bad after all. We also like to find technicalities, right? We find some technical, specific aspect of our sin that we think gets us off the hook, though we clearly committed it. Well, this is exactly the tactic that Pontius Pilate was using here. I mean, I ordered his torture and crucifixion but, you know, God, I mean, it was just all these religious leaders and a riot was going to break out. I mean, I, surely I'm still innocent on this. I mean, you know what would happen. Maybe people would have died had I, had I not done this. I'm trying to find some sort of loophole. We read, it is clearly that Pilate had Jesus scourged. That word specifically refers to a violent process of torture. They would take these whips. On the end of these whips would be tied shards of glass and metal and sharp stone, and they would hurl these whips at the victim. They would then turn around with their back to the victim and pull as the victim's flesh was torn from them. This is what Pilate ordered to happen to Jesus. And then Pilate had them Parade Jesus through the streets carrying his own cross to the place of his crucifixion where they would first tie him on the ground to the crucifix and then literally nail nails, large nails through his flesh affixing him to the cross. This is all what Pilate ordered. Yet before this took place, Pilate washed his hands. He declared himself guiltless before man and God. Because we do this ourselves, again, we read the story of Pilate and maybe feel a little sympathy or a little empathy. We miss the point that even if he appeared a little bit less guilty than others, we miss the point that he is still the final judge who ordered all these things to take place killing and condemning the Son of God. Well, looking at Pilate his story helps us see his deficiencies in love and communion and truth and worship and in innocence. He's, in the end, as guilty as all the religious leaders and Judas himself. And it serves, as, of course, as a great warning to us. You can make a really good case for yourself about your sin. You can try to become your own defense attorney and call God to show... Uh, to, to ask about the respectability of the sins you've committed, and surely God can sort of brush these aside. The fact is we are all as guilty as the next person, and we need to come to Jesus alone, trusting in Him alone for His righteousness and His payment for our sin, build our lives around Him, His truth. So for us believers, it helps us continue in our sanctification, continue viewing our sin as what it really is, cosmic treason. All right, what have we seen so far? What looks good on the surface for Pilate, but in the end made him guilty? First, we saw this, number one, admiration without love. Admiration without love. That's in verse 14. Matthew reported, Jesus gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Matthew gave us a summary here. You remember there's a a fuller story of what happened, this back and forth, the three political trials of Jesus. It started out with Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod, knowing that Herod was over Galilee. Herod couldn't find him guilty, sent him back to Pilate for a third trial. And Pilate, in the end, found him guilty the way he washed his hands. We read about this and we studied this last week, John 18. There's this back and forth. Pilate asked Jesus some questions. And Jesus answered him in that last phase. Pilate asked him, Are you really guilty of these accusations that the religious leaders had trumped up there pretty much on the spot? Of course, Jesus was not guilty. These were not true accusations, he was not an insurrectionist. He encouraged people to pay taxes, and he was a king, but not in a geographical sense. He was not a king in the sense that he wanted to take up arms and overcome any kind of other physical rule. He was a king in a spiritual way, and he explained this to Pilate. So Jesus, to Pilate, is a fascinating character. It's likely that Pilate knew of Jesus' popularity among the people. It's likely he understood that this is a very popular man, and Jesus was not a threat to anyone except some crooked leaders. I think Pilate understood a little bit of the dynamics of that day. He knew these leaders were crooked. He knew these leaders built people of money. He knew these leaders were jealous of their their power. And so the only people in Pilate's mind that he saw Jesus offending was these wicked religious leaders. Jesus was not a threat to anyone except for these failing religious leaders of Israel. What kind of man, you imagine Pilate sort of thinking in his mind, what kind of man, this rural guy from Galilee, from a small town, I mean, he must be a pretty amazing man, that he could stir up all of Israel in this way, not in a political way, not an insurrection, not not in any way negative for me, but stir up these wicked people. He must be a pretty amazing person. But amazement and admiration must not be confused with love, correct? Amazement of Jesus. Respect for Jesus is not salvation. Respect for His teaching, His morals, His activity. In fact, I would go so far to say there are many people who believe Jesus to be, in some ways, a miraculous man, a divine man, someone who can work miracles even. Many people who have admiration of Jesus don't genuinely love and follow after Jesus. Many folks who have this deep admiration and respect for Jesus are greatly amazed by Jesus but they don't love Jesus. Well, this, this brings us to point two. What was a failure of Pilate? What made him guilty, even though he thought of himself as innocent? He had comprehension without relationship. Look there at verse fifteen. Now, the feast of the governor was accu- at the feast of the, at the feast. The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. What I want to point out is that Pilate had the facts. He knew, it says. Pilate was not deceived by these leaders, these snakes. No way. He saw right through them. Again, I think it speaks to the fact that Pilate was pretty savvy. He understood the situation, the dynamics there. I'm sure he wasn't intimate with everything Jewish, but evidently he knew a little bit about these things, and he saw right through these religious leaders. Sanhedrin, the priests, scribes, various religio-political groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees, He, he just saw them as what they really were. They were just plain jealous. He knew, Matthew says. So it is to his surprise that the crowd screams for Barabbas, to release Barabbas, and screams for the crucifixion of Jesus. What's astonishing here is that the knowledge of Pilate, he understood, he comprehended, the knowledge of this injustice did not compel him for any kind of love or relationship with Jesus. In fact, he called Jesus. He is called the anointed one, the, the Christ. But this comprehension falls fatally short of genuine genuine relationship. Notice he said Jesus is simply called the Christ. He didn't say Jesus is the Christ, or certainly not my Savior, my anointed one, just mental knowledge. No relationship. What else is an indicator of false innocence? Innocence before man, but guilty before God. Number three, intuition without truth. Intuition without truth. Verse 19 presents us with something quite interesting. Only Matthew records this. Matthew was written early. Matthew, Between Matthew and Mark, it was probably one of the earliest of gospel accounts, and I suspect no one else felt like they needed to include it. Matthew wrote it down, so we read there, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, speaking of Pilate, his wife sent word to him Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, because of this single verse, this woman has literally been venerated. She is a saint in the Eastern tradition. She is known as St. Claudia Procula, or sometimes simply St. Procula, sometimes even St. Procla, they take out the U. But this canonization, this veneration is entirely baseless. Why? First of all, because she said nothing here that would indicate that she believed in Jesus, that she received Him, that she loved Him, that she became a disciple of him or followed him. There's no indication in these simple words, this, this one sentence, that she followed him as, as her Lord and Savior. Now, there were legends that arose later. Some of those legends made their way into some books uh, we call the pseudepigrapha, books that were tried to, that the people attempted to insert into the New Testament. It probably explains why the Eastern tradition they have a little more respect for those books, probably why they believe these stories a little better. They try to point out that she later became a follower. Maybe she's one of the people who's on the the name list later in the New Testament. That's why they assign her a name, Claudia. That was one of the names that Paul had mentioned, Claudia Procula. But again, there's nothing in Scripture, there's nothing in the Bible about this woman except for this one sentence here. And certainly nothing that would tell us that she was a genuine believer. The second reason why we should not venerate Pilate or Pilate's wife is that there's zero indication that this is anything more than a simple dream. Pilate and Procula knew who Jesus was. I mean, he had been preaching up on that Temple Mount for a whole week. Their palace, the Palace Antonio, some of you have been to, you visited Israel, it is literally on the corner of the Temple Mount. It's right there. Jesus had spent that whole week preaching on the Temple Mount. They knew about Jesus. Probably they had heard of him before. If you think about it, all that had happened up in Galilee, even around Jerusalem, all the thousands of people being healed and fed, they probably knew of this Jesus. They probably had heard of this Jesus. So this dream is just... A product of what was in her mind. When she says she was troubled, what I take from that is that it probably was some sort of nightmare. She she knew it would be wrong for Jesus to be put to death. Just as Pilate knew it would be wrong for Jesus to be put to death. She had all the information, and she had this instinct, this dream, this intuition that Jesus was guiltless. Now, I need to point something out here. There's nothing here about angels, nothing about God, nothing about divine revelation. On the surface, just reading it, it seems like this is a normal run of the mill dream. And I want to just park here for a few moments to discuss dreams. What role do dreams have in the life of a Christian? Now, I have to confess, I am a dreamer. I was the kid, I had three older sisters. And I don't know if they had this anything to do with it, but I was, a, I was the only one in the family who dreamt a lot. And I would always wake up, and I would start to bore my whole family by telling them what my stupid dreams were. I ended up marrying a young lady who does the same thing. She dreams a lot. And of course, now we have a house full of children who wake up and tell us their stupid dreams. <laughs> so I could, you could even ask me now. I remember my dream from last night. And uh, I dream almost every night. There's something I remember, or at least I remember mine. I think we all dream every night, but I remember my dreams almost every morning. Now, the reason I want to park here is because many Christians uh, do some Jesus here. You know what Jesus is? It's the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is when you take truth, you, you build truth from out of Scripture. Exa means from. Isa means to. And that's when you put your own ideas into Scripture. what I've noticed is a lot of people do a little bit of eisegesis here when it comes to dreams. They read between the lines, as it were, when it comes to Procula and her dreams, and they start to come up with a theology of dreams, which is not very biblical. What are dreams? Dreams are simply a product of what is already in your mind. Unless your dream is part of the revelation of God for Scripture, unless it can then be screened by genuine prophets and apostles who lived many, many years ago and then screened by the people of God, your dreams, no matter how realistic, no matter how amazing, no matter how seemingly touching, these are not new revelations from God. Dreams are not some sort of secret message that God is sending you and you alone, and you need to decipher them, you need to interpret them, you now need to find some meaning, because if you don't, you might not do what God is wanting you to do. No, you generally cannot trust your dreams. You can't follow your dreams, you cannot put weight in your dreams, you cannot rely on your dreams. The bottom line is you either believe that scripture is sufficient to adequately equip you for every good work or you don't. And so you look elsewhere, like in your dreams. Don't rely on your dreams. Don't look to your dreams. Don't give your dreams meaning. Don't assume that God is giving you some special, specific revelation. Now, do we see God giving revelation in dreams in the Bible? Yes, we see. I don't know. I didn't go through and count, but I think it's, I don't know, seven or eight times in the Bible over thousands of years. But again, those dreams were reviewable by prophets and apostles, the ones appointed to write Scripture. And then they were tested by the people of God, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. In fact the matter is we are told by God in His Word where we get our truth. It's from His Word, not from dreams. We don't look to our dreams. You don't trust your dreams. You don't get wrapped up in trying to interpret your dreams. Now, I will hasten to add, if you're filling your mind with... Truth, if you're fulfilling your heart with scripture and the ideas of truth, its doctrines and principles will enter your subconscious. They'll go into your subconscious mind and they'll plant themselves there. And if dreams are simply a product of what's in your mind, then it's possible that sometimes those things come out in your dreams. I had this happen one time. I, there was a fellow in ministry who was actively trying to destroy my reputation in the worst possible way. He was working hard to do this. And this man was a fellow minister. He was working very hard to do this. This man does not even profess, profess Christ anymore. But back then, he was trying to do this to me, and I just knew, uh, whatever the case, I needed to have the heart of forgiveness. I needed to have the heart. If he ever repented, I was ready to embrace him and reconcile and forgive him and 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 be with him and be a brother again with him. And so I just began to focus my attention on what it means to forgive and what forgiveness is all about. And lo and behold, I had a dream one night and I see this man and this man is there and he repents and I forgive. And we had this great moment of reconciliation and I woke up feeling wonderful and refreshed and the the beauty of forgiveness. That man never reconciled with me. That man never asked for forgiveness. That man, I don't know that I ever saw him after that. But God took those truths that were being built in me, and those truths came out of my dreams. So it's sort of like happy providence. God takes these things, happy part of the way God's created us. He takes things we put in our minds and our hearts, and they come out in our dreams sometimes. But again, that's not revelation like Daniel's dreams or Joseph's dreams or Jacob's dreams. This is simply a product of what's going into our minds. We see this sometimes in missions or evangelism. God is working on someone's heart and He takes what little of Jesus or the gospel they know and He begins to transform them and bring these truths to their minds and they're dwelling on this more and more and God is regenerating their heart and so these things begin to come to their mind and heart so that when the person comes to them, emotionally, they're ready to answer these things. Well, this is a bit of a digression, but the reason I digress is because about once a year someone comes to my office and they say, Pastor, I had this dream. Can you help me interpret this thing? What is God telling me about this? What is God saying to me? And I always tell them, you know, why don't you just start with Scripture? Let's start there. Let's not start with dreams. The problem with thinking that dreams are the way that God speaks to us is, number one, it's a subtle attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. Again, either Scripture is sufficient, either the Bible's truth is sufficient for us, or it's not. And the Bible proclaims it is sufficient for us. The Bible tells us it's sufficient for us. We don't need to go on hunts for some secret will of God in our dreams or any other place. We simply open the Bible. God has already spoken. And there doesn't have to be some sort of convoluted, complicated, psychological treatment of what we see. We can just read black and white. So much of the truths there are clear and obvious and knowable even by children. Another reason, it's a little bit dangerous to get into this idea of interpreting dreams and reading into our dreams. It's a subtle attack on the gospel and how the gospel comes to people. The gospel is the power and the salvation. Paul didn't say dreams are the power of salvation. You say, what if someone receives the gospel in a dream? Well, Paul says later in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You say, what if they hear the word of Christ in a dream? Now that word hearing, the word of Christ, is the rematos, the spoken word of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, how can they hear it without a preacher? So God has a plan of how people come to know Him. And it's not through dreams. Again, there may be some happy providences where God takes what little, they may ha- little understanding they may have and makes it bright and real and wonderful so that they would be more inclined. But the truth the gospel comes to people through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the presentation of the gospel by faithful people. Someone might say, well, pastor, you're limiting God. Doesn't God have the power to speak to people in dreams? Sure he does. But then you have to turn around. If God does, if you feel like God has spoken to you in your dream, you have to turn around and you have to check that with scripture because you don't know if it's God speaking to you or if it's the burrito you ate last night. <laughs> so my thought is, why not just start with Scripture? Why not just start with what we are told? God doesn't tell us to look to our dreams. God tells us to look to Scripture, and you're back at reading the Word again. So my point in this, my digression about this, is Proculus' dream does not measure up to one of these dreams we see, like with Joseph earlier in Matthew, or some other revelation through a dream. The only thing she said is, that she was troubled by it. Again, I get the idea that she had some kind of nightmare that we shouldn't touch this guy. He's innocent, which again, that could have been deduced simply from knowing who Jesus was and seeing what happened there on the Temple Mount that week. She should not be venerated as some kind of saint because apparently this non-divine dream came to her and we have no record of her ever following Jesus at all. Well, back to this point here intuition is a gut feeling subconsciously, whether it's from dreams or other ways, subconsciously math is done in your mind. You do some calculation. Someone comes to your door and they're selling something and their eyes shift around and their body language. And you may not be sitting there doing all those calculations in your mind, but there's just something. You just get a hunch. You get an intuition. I think this guy's lying about this product. I don't think it... I can, you know, clean my car and brush my teeth with this stuff. There's something not true about this. I actually had that happen. I had a guy come to me, show me the spray, and he cleaned my pavement there, and then he sprayed it in his mouth. I didn't buy any. Pilate's wife had this gut feeling through a dream, this intuition. She was very bothered by this. She knew that Jesus was innocent. Any It doesn't take a, a, a great attorney to figure out Jesus is not guilty. This went into her subconscious in God's providence. It was reproduced in her dream, or some sort of nightmare. nightmare. She passed that info on to her husband as he sat on the judgment seat to judge Christ. And Pilate essentially agreed, these religious people are liars. Jesus is not evil. Jesus is guiltless. He's innocent. He's blameless. I think Pilate himself, you could say, similar to his wife, he had this intuition. He had a gut feeling. This isn't right. But these intuitions did not save them. Pilate, his wife, just because they had positive vibes, positive intuition toward Jesus... It doesn't indicate that they loved Jesus and responded to the truth, biblical truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, think of this whole narrative. This, this whole narrative is not to teach us how good a guy Pilate was. It is how this whole train of evil... People put Jesus on the cross. And yes, there's there's different kinds of evil. There's, there's the evil of Judas, a, a betrayer who comes and betrays and then is full of regret. And then there's the evil of the religious people. There's no regret. There's just blatant evil, hatred, jealousy. But there's also, also this respectable kind of sin that puts Jesus on the cross. The sin of Pilate, the guy who had a gut feeling, Jesus is innocent. Intuition told him, told his wife, this this man is blameless. And yet this is still sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was subtle sin. It was respectable sin. It looked good, but it proved in the end to be yet another series of sins that put Jesus on the cross. My point is, what we can learn here is that warm notions about Jesus, positive Jesus vibes do not a Christian make. We live in the state of Hawaii, the Aloha State. We are supposed to welcome all things spiritual. And what I've discovered is that just about anyone you talk to has great, warm, positive vibes toward Jesus. They feel very... Warmly about Jesus. Yes, you can find an occasional person who is hateful to Christians and Jesus, but most, mostly people very, feel very warm and it's very aloha of them to, to be very positive about Jesus. Does this get them to heaven? Not at all. It's intuition, it's gut feeling without truth, without the gospel, without doctrine, without the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ without any kind of notion that Jesus is indeed the only way. That's intuition without truth. All right, let's keep moving through this passage. Verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, just a reminder from last time, Barabbas was an agitator to the worst degree. He had murdered at least one person. He robbed people. I mean, this is a real criminal. It says in the other Gospels that he was part of the insurrection. We don't know which one it was. We didn't live back then. But obviously, Matthew's readers would have understood a specific insurrection. There were a number of them back then you could choose from. There was probably some big insurrection. He killed somebody, and then he looted This man was a horrible individual. So my guess is Pilate assumed that if he presented the people with an option between Jesus, that his intuition told him was guiltless, was blameless, was good, was not evil, Pilate assumed they would easily pick to release Jesus, not Barabbas. But he did not calculate how hard the religious leaders had worked to convince the crowd. And I imagine when when Pilate had Jesus sent over to Herod, and I imagine that's when the, the religious leaders were working the crowd and going around and maybe even paying people to go around and, and stir people up. And they probably didn't know which one that Pilate would present to them, one of the three criminals that was supposed to be crucified that day. Probably didn't know that, but, but they didn't know what they wanted. They wanted Jesus dead. And so uh, they would say something like this, I imagine to the people, you know, have Pilate release anybody, but... Jesus. He has to die. It's kind of like what's happening in a lot of elections, I think, in America. Anybody but fill in the blank. I'll vote for anybody but so-and-so. A lot of hatred there. And they stir up this hatred. They stir up this, this spite towards Jesus. Have Pilate release anybody, but just not Jesus. He has to die. So here is this crowd... Screaming for the death of Jesus, verse 22, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. Pilate says something pretty amazing for an unbeliever, verse 23, and he said, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So listen carefully. From Pilate's own lips, we hear him say, This man is not evil. This man is holy. Holy. This man is good. This man is righteous. Just as my wife and I both sense intuitively, looking at the facts, even legally, this man is not guilty. This man is holy. This man is good. I found nothing but good in this man. Now this brings us to point number four, veneration without worship. I think this is a good place to stop. We have the Lord's table today. And I want to give us a little time for that. Pilate was a man who presented us with all these surface good works. He was a man that we, I think, can identify with, and yet he's a man who's just as guilty as everyone else of putting Jesus, the Savior, on the cross. And until you come and see yourself as that kind of person, a person who's guilty, not innocent someone who put Jesus on the cross, someone who has covered up your sins, who tries to justify your own sins until you see yourself like that and come to Jesus asking for His covering, not your own righteousness, but His covering to cover you in the judgment. You cannot be saved, just like Pilate was not saved. Well, let's pray that we rely on Jesus alone for salvation and pursue His righteousness alone. Father, we do thank you for this example, a negative example of someone who on the surface was innocent before men, but in the end was guilty, guilty of killing Jesus. We pray that we too would see ourselves like that, consider our own lives and hearts as guilty before you unless we trust in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all believe and trust in Jesus. Help us to love him, follow him, and truly worship him. And Lord, I pray this becomes a pattern of life, not something we do once for salvation, but the pattern of life is is not that we're constantly justifying ourselves, constantly trying to glaze over our sin, but coming to you constantly with confession and repentance and a desire to follow Jesus. Help us to be changed by the truth of the word of God today. We ask this in his name.